Hello, my name is Anne and I'll be bringing the second reading which is found in Luke chapter 6 beginning at verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when, you, when all men speak of you, when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne. Well, it seems that it's um, quite commonplace now where every week we've got an excellent kids' talk and it feels almost unnecessary that we need a sermon now on that, but uh, excellent job uh, to the kids' uh, church team. Uh, do keep your Bibles to Luke 6. Uh, we will work through this passage, uh, particularly reflecting on the Beatitudes. Uh, let's join again in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that your word will nourish your people as we sit under it, as we allow your spirit and desire that your spirit will apply to our hearts and convict us and change us. Help us, Lord, to have eternity's values in view as we live out our lives in service of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, each night at our dinner table, I notice how our children, how we eat dinner together, and it's quite fascinating just to see what they do and how they eat. And perhaps you may notice this in your own household as well. And I reckon it reflects something of their personality. And so one of my sons, when he gets his meal, he's on to the best stuff first. If a steak, he's eating the steak. Chips, he'll eat that stuff. Chicken wings, he'll eat all that stuff. And all the healthy stuff, he leaves to the end. The greens, the rice, all the boring stuff. But often what would happen is he'll get full before the end. And so that's what he's like. My other son, what he would do is he'll eat all the healthy stuff first. So he's trying to get through it. He's eating the greens, the veggies, the rice, and he leaves the good stuff to the end. And sometimes, unfortunately, he gets full before the good stuff, but anyway, that's him. And my other one, I've got only one daughter, so the, the last child. <laughs> uh, what she would do is she's a bit, low, a bit more like, you know, that uh, old song from the, from the 50s, uh, Que Sera, Sera. Whatever will be, will be. I'll eat a bit of this, a bit of that, and they'll just finish together. Whatever happens. Now, you're probably thinking, where am I going with this illustration? And I'm probably thinking that too. But there is a point. 
I do wonder whether, just as I reflect on my children, how they eat their dinner. The best stuff now or the best stuff later? Or I don't really care. And I wonder whether that's how we might reflect and think about our lives or our attitude to our own lives. So I live like where I want to live my dreams now, my best life now. That is what I expect now. Or do I live thinking and hoping that that will come sometime in the future? Or do I live just plodding along, whatever will be, will be? Well, what Jesus does in this passage is he helps us see the type of attitude we are to have in life, what we are to expect in life. Do we expect the best life now, to live our dreams now or later? Should we be expecting wealth and riches and comfort, a bit like Anne in the kids' talk? Expect all of that now, the praise of men and women. Is that how I live? I expect that to come now? Or do I expect that my best life will come in the future? You see, the attitude we have to our lives, to how we live, lies in whether, from God's perspective and with the spectacle of Scripture, that is considered the blessed life or whether that is a life of woe. And so as we come to this passage, it is a confronting passage. It speaks to every single one of us because Jesus here challenges the values of our world. And just like what we heard from Pete, he makes a mockery of the values of our world and he turns the values not upside down, but the right way up. And so this passage is revealing how do you see your life and have you got it right? And this passage is quite simple. We've got four pairs, which is which, now or later. So let's have a look. The first pair, do open up your Bibles to Luke 6. So is it blessed to be poor or rich? Now, I suspect we all know what we desire, what we would prefer. But what do we see here? Well, to be blessed means to have the favour of God. We have to understand what that means. It means God looks down upon us and says, My favour is with you. My favour is upon you. And whatever you're doing, sitting, walking, sleeping, going to a test, going to the doctors, having fun, my favour will follow you. That is to be blessed. And so it's God's favour here upon the rich or poor. Well, what did Jesus say? Look at verse 20. Blessed are you who are filthy rich, for yours is the good life. Is that what we see there? Not at all. That's what, what, what we might expect. In fact, that's the world value, isn't it? But what do we see? Verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, what do you think Jesus is getting at here? Blessed are you if you're the, the poor uni student working at Macca's. Is that what Jesus means? Or blessed are you if you're one of those who always get, gets a hand-me-down from your brother or sister. What does Jesus mean? Or does Jesus mean blessed are you if you are among the refugees in Hungary? If you're living in the slums of Manila, if you're homeless and you are dead poor, is that what Jesus meant? 
Well, it can't be that simple. I mean, I, I took my youngest son on a walk and we had a chat about this passage and asked him, do you think that's what Jesus meant, that you have to be poor to have the favour of God? And even my young son was able to say, well, you can't really take this literally. And he was right. We can't understand this passage on a flat level. And so what did Jesus mean? Poor in what way? Well, what Jesus meant was we are to be poor in spirit, spiritually poor. That is a recognition in my heart of hearts that I am inadequate. I've got nothing to show for. I've got nothing to, to buy with. I am spiritually bankrupt. I'm homeless spiritually. I'm in poverty when it comes to the things of God. And why does Jesus consider that blessed? Well, it is because when I do not have, I recognize my spiritual poverty. When I do not have, and I cannot buy, and I can never earn, that is when spiritually I beg. I plead, I turn to God, and I depend on Him. Because who else do I turn to? If I consider my life, and as you consider your lives, as you reflect I've got the burdens of my past. I've got the shame that still prick at my conscience. I've got the things that weigh me down, the guilt. I've got no purpose. I feel like life's a bit directionless. I've got nothing. Who do I turn to? That is spiritual poverty. I turn to God for forgiveness, for peace, for comfort, for restoration. And that's the promise of Jesus. You see what he says? He says, yours is the kingdom of God. And notice the tense of the verb there. It is not yours will be the kingdom of God, future, but yours is now, present, the kingdom of God. Even now in this life, with all the brokenness and messiness of life, you belong to the kingdom of God. But then we see the flip side, the pair. But woe to those who are rich. Jesus flips it the right way round. Woe means how terrible, how sad, how sad to be one of these. It is an expression of re regret, not a threat. And so verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Now what was Jesus getting at here? Was he saying you, you should not and cannot have a healthy bank account? which I suspect most of us would. Was that what Jesus was getting at? Was Jesus getting at here, we cannot enjoy any of the creature comforts this world has to offer? Well, I think what Jesus was getting at was the point he made in, in the Gospel of Mark when he encountered that young, rich ruler. Remember that story? This young, rich ruler comes to Jesus and says, I fulfilled all the laws. I certainly, certainly deserve eternal life. But then Jesus says to him, he goes to him and Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You see, Jesus asked him, don't trust in your wealth. Trust in me instead. But instead, what did this man do? At this, this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, what was his problem? Well, because of his great wealth, it provided him a false sense of security. 
You see, when you are rich materially, it provides a false sense of security because my money can solve the problem. If I have bills to pay, well, I've got money. I can solve that problem. If I've got a large family to feed, if I've got money, no problem. I can feed my family. If I need to go to doctors, have surgery, go to the hospital, well, I've got money. I can pay for the best of doctors. You see, when you are rich, you, you don't know how to beg. A rich person does not need to beg. And there lies the problem. I mean, if I have stacks of stuff, I never lack anything. Then it, it sort of blinds me to the real condition of my spiritual poverty. And wealth often insulates us from seeing our spiritual need. It's why it's so hard to bring the gospel to wealthy people. Because what do I need? I've got it all. I don't see why I need to depend on God. But that's the deceitfulness of wealth. It provides a false sense of security. And that's why Jesus said in that same story, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so woe to such a person. The rich man has already been paid in full. You think your best life is now? Well, it is your best life because your future looks bleak. But then again, we shouldn't be simplistic about this and say that all rich people will not enter the kingdom of God, just as we can't say all poor people will automatically enter the kingdom of God. We're, we're talking about a spiritual level here. You can be materially rich, but you know your spiritual poverty. Just like the first reading, Psalm 51. King David, he had it all. Wealth, he had palaces, he had armies, he had gold more than you can count. Wealthy in the eyes of the world, but he recognized his spiritual poverty. When he sinned, he turned to God and said, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Though rich materially, poor spiritually. And the blessed are those who recognize they are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That's the first pair. Second pair, verse 21. Have a look again. Blessed are you who have buffet breakfasts, gourmet lunch, lunches, and fine dining dinners. Not what we read. But instead, blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. And again, we're meant to understand this with that same type of attitude as being poor. Not necessarily physically hungry, where, you know, your stomach's churning and grumbling. However, to be genuinely hungry and I suspect amongst us not many of us probably understand what it means to be truly hungry do, do you know real hunger you know real hunger is not just missing a meal or two or even a meal for a day my, my mum shared of when they left Vietnam on these overcrowded boats and they were out at sea for months that was real hunger those we see on the streets without a home that's real hunger and when you're really hungry, what do you do? You beg. Because your livelihood depends on it. And so what Jesus is saying here, when you hunger now, when you hunger for what you do not have, and in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus expands on this beatitude. He says, it is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. My yearning are the things for God. I yearn, I long for it. I want to be in God's presence. I want God's presence to be with me. 
I hunger and thirst for that. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I am not right. I don't have it, but I need it to survive. And the blessing is that if you do hunger and depend on God in such a way, he will fulfill. He'll bring you close. He'll make you right. He'll satisfy like nothing else in this world can satisfy. And then we read the flip side of the verse 25. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. You see the contrast again. And that's the picture we see in the story Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man. Later in Luke, we'll see this in Luke 16. I mean, the rich man lived a life of luxury, lived his dream, had it all, well fed. But outside his gate was the beggar, Lazarus, covered with sores, desperate, longing to eat just the food that that would drop from the rich man's table. And then what happened? Well, when they both died, Lazarus, the poor man, went to heaven. Whereas the rich man, he went down to Hades, to hell, in agonizing torment, such that he was longing for Lazarus just to dip his finger in the water to cool his tongue because of the agony of the fire. Their future was reversed. Lazarus finally satisfied, fully satisfied in heaven to be with God, all the joy and glory unimaginable. But the rich man, who had it all on earth, lived his best life on earth, thought that was it, discovered that there is an eternity of agony he will face. And can you imagine that predicament? To, to hunger forever and ever and never be satisfied? To thirst forever and ever and to never have that quenched? And so the blessing is, how do you know you're blessed? You hunger now. You don't live the dream now. It's not it. This is not it. You hunger for what you do not have. And so that should cause us to just reflect. What is it that I really long for? Are they the stuff of this world or are they the things of God? Am I concerned about the stuff of my stomach or the things of God? That's the second pair. Now the third pair, verse 21. Again, Blessed are what? The happy, the smiley, the partying one. But we read, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Now, what did Jesus mean here? Did Jesus mean, you know, he's calling us to get together and have a cry session? You know, just huddle together and cry and weep. Is that what he wants? Or does Jesus want us to become more sensitive, you know, where when you see the sunset, you just weep and cry. Is that what he wants from us? Well, no. What Jesus is saying here is when we live in this world and see all that happens, the ravages of sin, the, the devastation of diseases, how death robs us, the corruption of governments, the miscarriage of justice, the endless wars, the greedy and oppressive rulers, the struggle for power, the prostitution of women, the slavery of children, the indignity and sickening ways in which people treat each other, the distortion of marriage, 
the confusion with gender, mucking around with God's design, the deconstructing of families, the celebration of adultery and promiscuity and perversity, the tragedies that sweep the world. Just this past week, I read an article about what's happening in Ukraine. They found 280 bodies buried in a part of Ukraine because of the war. Stories, horrible stories. Husbands killed in front of their wives, wives raped by the soldiers, children used as human shields. You read these stories. Of course, we don't want to, but you read it. And then you have to ask, is life a laughing matter? Or is it a weeping matter? When you see the perversity of sin, do we grieve and do we weep? I mean, you think about it long enough, it's meant to weigh heavily upon our hearts. It's why the Psalms, the book of Psalms, we think about the Psalms as songs of praise. However, about 70% of the Psalms are laments. And so you read Psalms like, My soul is in anguish. How long? How long, O Lord? And so Jesus himself, we see how he saw this world. Remember the story when he was at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus? We read those chilling words. This is the Son of God. This is the one who gave life to all. And we read those two chilling words. Jesus wept. And you add to not just the sins of the world, but you add to all that our own sins, our own brokenness, our own shame. And if we're honest with the darkness of our own hearts, we would say with the Apostle Paul, what a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? And so we weep. But you see the promise of Jesus. It will not always be like that. You weep now. Yes, you must weep now. We mourn now. But it will not always be like that because one day, one day, the best life is not now. It will come and that day, every tear will be wiped. All pain will be gone. Death will be gone forever. And then there will be laughing. There will be rejoicing. There will be a joy unimaginable that will go on for all eternity. It will happen, but not yet. And so that's why we see the flip side now, verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. You see, those of us who walk through life and completely unfazed by the wickedness and the sin we see around the world, the wickedness of even our own hearts, and just to laugh it off, it's okay, it's not a big deal, we're just human, to err is human, and to even delight in the wrongs being done, well, you see, one day we all face the Lord. We face the judge of the living and dead. And at that point, it will not be a laughing matter. There will be an eternity of weeping. And so what does the blessed life look like? It is to weep now. And finally, perhaps most radical, is it blessed to be hated or to be loved? To be persecuted or to be popular? Well, what did Jesus say? Well, what Jesus says here is what discipleship looks like. What it means to follow after him. What it means to carry the cross and follow after him. To deny ourselves. You see, following Jesus, he did not 
you know, put discipleship in fine prints. You know, come after me and you'll get all these things and then, you know, small fine prints like in our mobile phone contract, but these are the conditions and caveats. Not at all with Jesus. You see, Christian discipleship, in Christian discipleship, no shortages of challenges, of difficulties, of exclusion, and of hatred. Look at verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and, ex- and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Now the key to understanding that verse is that last part. You're hated, you're persecuted, you're excluded, not because you're a nuisance, not because you're obnoxious, not because you're, you're just an idiot, but because of the Son of Man. It is because of the name you bear, Christ. I am a Christian, and it is because of the message you proclaim, Christ and him crucified. And of course, increasingly we're seeing it more and more in the Western world. It has always been like that in many parts of the world. But we're seeing it more and more in in this part of the world, and it is to be expected. The views of Jesus and his followers are not welcomed in the public sphere. I read this book this past week, and, and Stephen McAlpine, he said, he questioned, wasn't it only yesterday that Christianity was begrudgingly accepted as a societal good? But now, it's not only unpalatable, it's positively toxic. And now it's time to get rid of it. You see, once upon a time in Australia, Christianity was in the centre. Now it is at the margins, but even there, society wants to get rid of. And so we have to ask ourselves, What does it look like to follow this? To be blessed when men hate you. I mean, if you do stand up for Jesus, and this is every day. This is with our colleagues and our friends and even on social media. This is how we relate and interact with the world. If you do stand up to Jesus and do what is right, never compromising on your integrity and your honesty. At work, at school, you don't shy away from even, you know, Christians praying in a restaurant, saying grace together. I wonder whether Christians are a bit too shy. Let's just say it quietly so that no one hears us. You, you don't give in to the tidal wave of popular opinions and the different ideologies that are going around. You don't remain silent when there are important discussions about life and death, like abortion, euthanasia. When there are discussions about marriage and gender, do you remain silent? You recognize that there is a moral standard by which we are called to live. And if you do all of that, just see whether you'll be embraced by the world. You see, on the world stage, persecution of Christians happens, and it has always happened, and it will continue to happen. I mean, you just have to read the latest update of Barnabas Fund. It is always heartbreaking, but yet that is expected of discipleship. Not, not many years ago, a street preacher, this is in England, David McConnell, police held him in custody. Why? Because he proclaimed Christ on the street corner. And of course, at the severe end, Christians are still beheaded and still killed. Stats have it that it's about 150,000 Christians killed each year for their faith. But even so... What did Jesus say? 
verse 23. Jesus said, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. I mean, is that shocking? Is that radical? Not just bear with the persecution, not just bear with it all, but rejoice and leap for joy. And why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Do I get the best stuff now? Or do I expect and hope that the best will come? For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. You see, that's how the prophets of old were treated. Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah was stoned to death. Ezekiel, he was executed. Amos, he was clubbed to death. And so if that's what happened to them, what should we expect? And how did the first Christians respond when they found themselves suffering from, for Christ? When they were brought and dragged before the Sanhedrin, interrogated and flogged, what did they say? Or well, in Acts 5, we read this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And so rejoice in such a day. That's to have the blessed life. And then the flip side, verse 26, have a look. Woe to you when men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. I mean, if we live in this world and we are no different to the world at all, you cannot see the difference between your life, your lifestyle, and the world's life and lifestyle. Your values, they completely align. The world will love you for it. They will embrace you for it, but not God. You have the favor of men and women, but not the favor of God. But blessed are those of you who are hated because of the Son of Man. And so there are the four options, the four pairs and so let me ask you again, best life now? I expect to live my dream now. Or do I live with hope that the best is yet to come? Glory now, suffering later, or suffering now and glory later? In a sense, how do you eat your dinner? Best now, best later. You see, what Jesus teaches here is most radical. He turns our world the right way up to see eternity's values in our lives and to have that perspective in life. And it helps us at every station of life. You see, when life is good, and as we reflect and as you reflect on your own life, life may be good now. This season of life is good for me. That may be what you are thinking. My health is good. Kids are behaving. Job is fulfilling. No crisis at all. Life is good. Life is normal. In fact, I often say, if life is just normal, bland, normal, it is a huge blessing. Because it only takes one thing to go wrong, one little crisis to turn life into a misery. But when life is good, and there's great joy, there's great celebration and rejoicing, not that we are not to experience that, but there is a danger. The danger is that we get too comfortable, too complacent, and too satisfied with the world. We become even too comfortable, perhaps, with the sin and wickedness we see around us and in us, and we lose perspective. We forget our spiritual poverty. If life is good, then I stop hungering and thirsting for better things. I start to build deep roots into this world, thinking that this is my permanent home. 
and all our energy and effort and even our prayers to God is just so that he might help us maintain a good life. That's the danger. And that's to lose perspective when life is good. Instead, when life is going well, and for some of us it is, what do we do? We receive it with thanks. Of course, we praise God for it. It's undeserved. It is by his grace alone. But then we also reflect, well, if it is good now, heaven is only going to be better. If my marriage now is beautiful, as you reflect on your relationships, if my marriage now is wonderful, I'm not meant to be so overwhelmed and inward-looking with my marriage. It's meant to point me towards the greater marriage. If this is good, oh man, I can't wait for that marriage. It's going to be so much better when Christ is joined with his bride. Or when my friendships are so deep and meaningful and intimate. Now, I just thank God for the friends I have. That is meant to help us long for even more what is to come. When all the friendships and relationships in heaven will not be marred by sin in any way. How much greater will that be? Or when work is satisfying now and fulfilling. Praise God for that. It's not always the case. But if that is... We still long for that better life, that dream life, when our work is not toil and is not cursed by the fall. And even as we reflect on our personal walk with the Lord, it may be wonderful for you now. I'm close with Jesus. I'm spending time with him. I just know his heartbeat. I feel it. If that is great, you long for even more because one day, you know what? We get to see our Savior face to face. You see, just two minutes of glory in heaven will far overwhelm us to a degree where, as we reflect on our life, of all the pleasures and joys and happiness in 80, 90 years, that will start to look so childish. Just two minutes in heaven. You see, when life is going well, I do not lose perspective. My life, my best life, is not now. That is to come. But when life is bad, and for some of us, it is like that. It feels like life is hard, it is difficult, it is heartbreaking. If that is your life at the moment, one thing to keep in mind is that we try not to think of our lives as helpless victims, especially if we're suffering for the name of Christ. We don't think of ourselves as helpless victims because I'm an aggressive, oppressive world. I mean, often our world thinks that way, just play the victim card, but not us. It is to be expected. Christians are to be persecuted. But instead, what do we do? We remember what the Apostle Paul said. He said, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And so what's the perspective here? It will be worth it. The best life is to come. Our years on earth will not be forever, but heaven will be. And when we get to heaven one day, we'll live there with a joy that is inexpressible now. And we'll look back on our lives, and when we see the points where we suffer for Christ, we'll say, that was absolutely worth it. When life is bad, I keep the eternal perspective. That is to come. And finally, when life is uncertain... And I suspect for some of us it's a bit like this. It's just uncertain. What's life about? A bit directionless. You know, that 
kesara attitude, whatever will be, will be. I come back to this passage. What does it look like to be blessed by God now in this life? What does it look like to have eternity's values in view? It means I live with that spiritual poverty. I need the Lord every day. I hunger and I thirst for him. And I know with absolute certainty the best life is still to come. And I'll end with this quote from John MacArthur. He puts it this way. He said, This is your best life if your next life is in hell. But on the other hand, if you are a child of God and your sins are forgiven and you've come to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, this is not even close to your best life. You can't even comprehend what your best life looks like because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And so, are you living the blessed life? It is one of poverty, of hunger, of weeping, and of hatred. But though that is what is now, the best life is to come. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the eternal perspective you give us in this life, that we might live with great hope that the life of our dreams, in fact, the life of your dreams, will come true when we see our Lord and Saviour face to face. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.